morning to the Word of God, to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew's Gospel, 6th chapter. And we'll read a few verses together here. In verse 9 of Matthew 6, Jesus speaking here says to his disciples, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now right from the very beginning of this year, we have been looking to the Lord. We have been seeking His face, desiring breakthroughs in our lives, uh, in our family's lives, our personal needs, our community, our nation, or anything else that you can think about that needs a breakthrough. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we must dig again the wells of prayer. And I, I really felt challenged before the, this year was upon us that we would do this coming into January, February uh, especially, and that uh, we would begin to reignite our passion for prayer. Because I suspect that many has lost the passion to pray and to seek the Lord. And if we do not do this, then we're just not going to get the breakthroughs uh, that we desire. Our prayer lives get blocked up, we get clogged up with activities, with busyness, with legitimate things, lots of stuff we've got to deal with in our daily lives. We've got jobs, we've got homes, we've got families, we've got responsibilities, we've got all of those things. And then we've got our leisures and our pleasures and our hobbies. And, and so if you're not careful before you know it, you'll find that your prayer life gets so squeezed that we just kind of fit it in when and if we can. And that's root, really is the root of our problem many, many times. And so we need to unblock these wells of prayer. We need the fresh flow of God's living water uh, to flow again and revive us in this area. Now, when the disciples here requested, and we saw this in Luke whenever we read this past two weeks, when they requested, Lord, teach us to pray, he gave them this model, these guidelines uh, to use in order to encourage them and to teach them to prayer. Now, this was not a prayer that Jesus himself prayed. His great prayer is in John 17. So this really is the disciples' prayer, and it's our prayer. And so he gave them this as a model, even though we commonly call it the Lord's Prayer. But he didn't pray it himself because he didn't need to. He had no debts. He had no sins to be forgiven. So he didn't need to pray this prayer. But he encouraged us and the disciples to use this. And those rabbis, uh, they often taught their disciples to pray. And they would use what would be called an index to prayer. And that is, it would, again, it would be just guidelines. It would be pointers, little reminders when they're in prayer 
uh, how to begin prayer, how to end prayer, what to pray about, and how to glorify God through prayer. John the Baptist we know because the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. So we know he did something similar. However, Jesus, he gave us this model to use when we pray. And it's fine, it's appropriate uh, on occasion for, in a congregational way, for everyone to pray this publicly and out loud. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, times it's very fitting to do that. However, that's not really what Jesus' intention was when he gave us this guideline to pray. And so, we want to examine this this morning. I don't know how far I'll get in this. I may or may not finish it this morning, but we want to begin to examine it. But before we do that, uh, we need to read just the few verses that, that came before this uh, to put all this into context. So, if we can just look back to verse 5. Jesus here is talking about... Uh, hear about prayer. And he says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, Jesus is very obviously referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, these were the hypocrites of his day. These were the ones who Love to, for a pretense and for a show, for an outward show to everybody. See how good a prayer I am. Uh, see how eloquent I am in my prayers. And so they would stand up in the synagogue or in the marketplace especially that everybody could see them praying. Now Jesus was not saying that we shouldn't stand to pray. Obviously he's not saying that. There's all kinds of positions in prayer throughout scripture. He's not saying that we shouldn't pray publicly because obviously we should on occasions pray publicly. He's not even saying we shouldn't pray in a public place. You know, often if you're in a restaurant before you have a meal, you publicly say grace at the table. That's fine. What he's saying is, is doing this to be seen by men, to show off, in other words, to look super spiritual in front of everybody. He says, don't do that. That's what the scribes, the hypocrites, that's what they do. And he says, they have the reward. Everybody thinks they're so pious and so holy. He says, that's their reward. But he says... He goes on to say, but when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Question, have you got a room? Have you got a secret place to pray in? Have you got a closet? Have you got somewhere? It, it, it may vary according to your circumstances. Uh, you may not be able to go into that particular room in your house every single day. You may have to change that because of circumstances. That's fine. But what he's saying here, do you have a place? Do you have somewhere where you and God can be alone in prayer? Nobody listening, nobody watching, so you're not doing it for a fact. You're doing it before him and him alone. That's what he's saying. Jesus himself often did this, didn't he? In fact, it seems to be that his favorite place to meet for prayer was meet with the Father in prayer was the Garden of Gethsemane. And certainly that was the last place he resorted to before he went to the cross. Oftentimes he would go up the mountain place uh, and sometimes he would even stay there all night and pray just to be alone. Even sometimes when he took his disciples with him, he would get them to stop and then he would go a little further. You know, just, just maybe out of earshot where he could just privately just be alone uh, with the Father God. So... 
This is what he's saying here. Have a place, have a room, have somewhere where you can go and shut the door. Now, one of the hardest things you have to learn in prayer is shutting the door. I don't just mean the physical door, but I mean the door in your mind. How often have you went to pray, and within 10 seconds, your mind is on, do you think that car's going to start in the morning? Clifford. <laughs> do you think the dinner will be ready at 6 tonight? Maybe I should put that on a wee bit earlier. You know, and, and suddenly your, your mind, or wonder what the score was in the match there last night. And, and suddenly your mind is racing. It's all over the place. And you've got to shut that door again. Because your mind wants to go outside the room. It wants to be distracted and, 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 you know, and, and cut off from what you really want to do. And so we need to learn how to shut the door. You may have to shut it ten times in the first 20 minutes. The first five minutes. But the more you learn to shut the door and to shut out the distractions, the better it will be. When you have shut the, your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now there's something about praying secretly. Now we pray corporately on Thursday nights together. Maybe you're in company in a small group you pray. That's great. But there's something about just being alone with your Heavenly Father. There's some things that may be difficult to pray about publicly or even in a group. But just to be alone with the Father in the secret place, knowing that He at that moment sees you in the secret place. Reminds me of Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Lord shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And so, each time you come in, realize that at that moment the Father sees you in that place. He knows you're there. He's waiting to hear your prayer. Then it says, He who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, we don't know altogether what that means. But what it surely means basically is that God will find some way of honoring you because you have honored him in the secret place. And God got some public way of honoring you for that. He may answer your prayer in such a way that all will know that God has answered your prayer. And it will be public. He'll reward you openly for that. Then he says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we can't ask again and again and again. In fact, we saw, was it last week or the week before, uh, where he said, you ask and seek and knock. And the way it's written is a continual asking, a continual seeking, a continual knocking. So he's not saying that. What he is saying here is that we don't just do something by rote that we don't just do something uh, almost mechanically or robotically where that we don't even think about it. It's just something we just say. That becomes a vain repetition. Now what you'll find is in many religions and many cults, they have all kinds of, of strange mantras and incantations and so-called prayers, but it's just vain repetition. 
They just go over it and over it and over it and they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Well, I've got to pray this 15 times this week. I've got to pray this prayer 30 times today. It's just vain repetition. God's not interested in that. I had a cousin. And on Monday she used to pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, seven times. For she said that did her all week. <laughs> I think that's a vain repetition, don't you? Well, she was only a little girl when she did that. She's only a young girl. She doesn't do that now, but that's what she thought. But anyway, I knew another guy, and he says when he got the groceries on Friday, he prayed over all the groceries. That meant he didn't have to say grace any time after that. <laughs> I think that's a vain repetition, isn't it? And so he says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And then he goes into this model of a prayer. Now, notice how he starts. Our Father in heaven. Now, we've already said in this series that the whole concept that the disciples had to learn, which is brand new to them, was this business of calling God Father in the way that Jesus did. In fact, Calling God Father is only mentioned 14 times in the whole of the Old Testament. And each and every time, it's relating to God being the Father of the nation. They didn't have a problem with that. They understood that. But when it comes to calling God Father in prayer, now Jesus in the Gospels, just in the four Gospels, it's recorded that he said the word Father over 70 times. And every time he used the term Father in prayer. It was so intimate. It was so personal. It was so family-oriented. Because he used the term Abba, Father, which we said last week was an everyday term in use in the home. Children called their dad Abba. And so when Jesus used this term to address the Father in prayer, this amazed the disciples. This was unknown to them. They had never grown up with this. And so Jesus is teaching them a whole new concept of how to pray. They were really, really interested to know what he was saying. And so when he used this term, it was much more personal. Now you find that the disciples picked up on this. For instance, in 1 John 3 and 1, uh, the beloved apostle John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And so the penny began to drop. They began to see God not just as the father of the nation or the father of creation, but their heavenly father, personally and intimately. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. Every born-again believer has been adopted into the family of God. I haven't time this morning to go into the whole business of adoption. It's wonderful and I've taught about it in the past. But that spirit of adoption 
where we have full rights and full privileges and full responsibilities, responsibilities as sons and daughters of God, then he says that spirit of adoption that's in our heart cries out to God as Abba Father. We begin to realize that God is just not God of the creation. He's our heavenly Father. Now notice that he says our Father. Our Father. When you pray, say our Father. Not just my Father, but our Father. So this tells us that our prayer life, get this, is interdependent. We don't just pray in isolation. It's interdependent. How you treat your fellow brother and sister will without question affect your prayer life before the Heavenly Father. We always got to remember that this is directly related to how we treat one another. Because in this model prayer, as we'll see in a moment or two, Jesus talks about forgiveness right in the middle of it. He speaks of forgiveness. In fact, he comes back to the subject of forgiveness immediately after he finishes this model prayer. <clears throat> and he picks up on forgiveness again. So it's a very, very big thing with God. Forgiveness. <clears throat> and so we need to understand that. We need to realize that our relationship with God is not just heavenward, but it's manward too. It's not just vertical, but it's horizontal. Because there are those Christians who think, well, I, I don't need the rest of I don't need Christians around me. I don't need Christianity. I, I can just worship God. I can go into the field or I can look at the sky and I can just worship God that way and privately and I don't need to interrelate to anybody else. Wrong. Wrong. And your prayers will never be effective until you realize that we are part of a family and how we relate to each other in the family will affect how we pray and how the Father hears us pray. Our Father... In heaven. God is not limited to time or space as we are. His throne is in excuse me, is in the heavens. God is seated high above all. And because he's in the heavens, he's got an entirely different perspective. I was watching the other night on television again. I was watching about the, the moon landings in the 60s. And it was the, the story of those who walked on the moon in their own words. They were narrating this. And uh, some of them said that whenever they stood on the moon and they looked up, we look up to see the moon on earth, but when you're on the moon, you look up to see the earth. And he says, whenever I looked up and saw the earth, I saw it from an entirely different perspective. He says, I could see this blue-green marble, he called it, out there in the inky blackness of space, being half-lit by the sun. And he says, at that moment, he says, when I looked at the earth from the moon, I thought, everything I own, everyone I love, everything I know has happened on that blue marble out there. And he says, suddenly my whole perspective of life on earth changed in that one moment because he, he viewed it from a different perspective. God sits on his throne in the heavens. The earth is his footstool, the Bible says. He has a different perspective. 
we are on the earth. We got to deal with life here. And sometimes it gets clouded and we have trouble and we have crises and we have problems and we have agitations and we have sicknesses and we have <laughs> getting laid off work and we have a thousand and one things to contend with. And because of that, our perspective sometimes changes. But not God's. Not God's. Listen to what Isaiah 55 and 8 says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, nor your ways, my ways, said the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. So when we come before God, our Heavenly Father, we've got to realize that He is seated on that throne far above all principalities and powers and mights, far above all that's happening on this earth, and he can see every single thing that goes on in every single life. And he's interested, and he knows how to deal with it. But we've got to get it into our head that he's got a different perspective. And sometimes in prayer, you need to ask God, say, God, what is your perspective? How do you see this problem? How do you see this difficulty I'm facing? How do you see this promotion that I may get? Is this in your will? Is this your purpose for my life? Because he can see beyond today. He can see your whole future ahead of you because he sees it from a different perspective. So we need to ask God these things. Then he says, hallowed. That's an old-fashioned word. It just means holy. Holy be your name. Note how he said this right at the very beginning. The Lord has many, many names in Scripture. Too many for me to mention. I'll mention a few of them. And each and every name shows a part of his nature, his character. God reveals his nature and his character in his name. And right at the very beginning of this prayer, Jesus wants to make us conscious of his name. His name is holy. And all that holiness conveys to us. Think about some of the names. The different names that God has got. Jehovah Elohim. Elohim means the creator God. The creator of the ends of the earth. Now, if ever we need to remind it not as today... Modern atheism is doing everything it can to try to dispel any notion that there is a creator God. That we just happened spontaneously. That there is no design. That there is no creator. Isn't it interesting that right at the very beginning of this prayer, God is reminding us that he is the creator. That he's a holy God. He's almighty God. Adonai, Jehovah, the Lord, our master. Or Jehovah, Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Or Jehovah, Rofika, the Lord, our healer. Or Jehovah, Shalom, the Lord, our peace. Or Jehovah, Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Or Jehovah, Shammah, the Lord is present. Or Jehovah, Elion, the Lord, most high. Or Jehovah, Rohai, the Lord is my shepherd. And on and on you could go. Uh, you know, and, and there's times in prayer. You know, whenever you need 
Your mind is agitated with a problem. You don't see a way through. You're frustrated. You're in all kinds of problems or you're depressed or you're whatever. You can say, Lord, you are Jehovah Shalom. You are my peace. Sometimes you need to remind yourself of the names of God. If you've got a need, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is present. Did you ever feel in prayer that he wasn't present? That it seemed like God was a million miles away in his heaven and he had no idea what was going on on earth in your life? Well, look at his name. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is present. Did he not promise, I will Never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll be with you even unto the end. But we've got to be reminded. When you sin, when you blow it, and you come before the Lord, you say, God, forgive me. Because Christians aren't perfect. I know sometimes we give the appearance of that. But we're not. And we know we're not. So no point pretending we are. And we do sin. And we do blow it sometimes. But thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God for his righteousness. So you can say, Lord, I come and ask forgiveness. And when he gives you forgiveness, you can say, Lord, you are Jehovah Sidkenu. You are my righteousness through Christ. Think of the names of Jesus himself. The good shepherd. The great shepherd. The chief shepherd, redeemer, the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life, and on and on you could go. Think of all of those names. You see, if you start to think of these things, I guarantee you, your prayers will be extended. Your prayer life will be extended. Because the more you think about these names, the bigger God becomes in your eyes and the smaller your problem becomes. Hallowed. Holy is your name. He said, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Luke 17, 21. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. So when you pray, your kingdom come, what you're really praying is, you're asking for God to rule and to reign in your life as the king. That he's Lord of all. That that part of his domain, which is you, that he will rule and he will reign in it. That his kingdom will come alive in you. That his kingdom in you will be real. Now we talked about this in a little bit more detail in one of our previous studies. That God's kingdoms, that God's kingdom, his principles and his priorities of his kingdoms will become real in our lives. It will be governed and shaped by his principles and by his priorities of his kingdom working within us. Now we know that eventually that Christ is going to come and his kingdom will be manifested fully, visibly, materially upon the face of the earth. We know that from scripture, but right now. His kingdom is within us. 
but how much of his kingdom governs and shapes our lives? That's the big question that you and I have got to ask ourselves. How much is his will a priority in our lives? Well, the quick answer to that is, here's how you know. How much of your time, energy, talents, finances, abilities, how much is all of that given to the kingdom in comparison to what you give to this life and this world? And when you begin to weigh those two up, when you begin to compare those, you'll see whether the kingdom of God is fully working in our lives. That's how to know. And so, he prays that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done. Now sometimes people are frightened to pray that prayer. Oftentimes Christians are frightened to pray that prayer. I'm a wee bit scared to say, Lord, your will be done in my life because what if his will is something that I really, really don't want to do? What if his will is to send me to Timbuktu? And I don't want to go to Timbuktu. What if his will is to get me to do something that I just do not feel I could ever possibly do? Why do we always think of the negative? Why do we always think that if we pray God's will that God is just out of spite or to teach us a lesson, is going to say, well, I'm just going to give you something to do. I know fine rightly you will hate doing. You'll be miserable doing it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Why do we think that? Why do we not believe that God's will is the best for us? That what he will ask us to be and to do will be the best. And it will be the best for us as well as his will for us. It'll be the best for us. And embrace it. And ask him for it. Say, Lord, your will be done in my life. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. See, he wants others to see his kingdom, his greatness, his goodness in us. He wants others to see his will being worked out in our lives and to see that his will is good. What does it say in Jeremiah? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to bless you, to help you, not to hurt you, not to put you down, not to shortchange you, not to make you miserable and sad and gloomy and depressed, but plans to give you hope and to give you a future. And so it's good and it's right to pray and say, Lord, your kingdom come in my life. I want your will to be done in me. I want to walk in your will. I want to live in your will. And whenever you do that, your life begins to change. Your kingdom come, we said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about this. There is absolutely no resistance to the will of God in heaven. None. It does not exist. Any that there was has long since been dealt with, and that's another issue, another story. But right now, and forevermore, there is no resistance to the will of God in heaven. When God speaks... His angelic hosts are willing, able, ready to instantly and continuously carry that will out. 
without fear or favor, without any question or quibble. But not so on earth. Not so on earth. Because earth is in rebellion against Almighty God. Earth is in rebellion against the creator of heaven and earth. This planet is in rebellion against the creator. Always has been since Adam sinned in the garden. And always will be until Christ returns. And that's why there's so much trouble and evil and wickedness and disaster in this world that we live in. Because this world is, in, is against its creator. Shakes its puny fist at almighty God. And so man resists and rebels against the will of God. You know, even when Jesus came to this earth as the Son of God, the religious people, that's where Jesus had his problems with, the religious people, the hypocrites, those who it was only a form and a show, you know what they said? We will not have this man rule over us. That's the rebellious heart, isn't it? We will not have this man to rule over us. And you know, part of that rebellion is in every human being. And oftentimes that's why when people get to that place where they know they need to be saved and born again, they know they need to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness and repent, they know they need to do that. But oftentimes they don't do that because they feel, I gotta, my life has got to change. And I'm not sure if I want my life to be changed. I want to live my life my way, how I want, how I like. You know what we're saying? We don't want this man to rule over us. We're rebelling against God. Jesus one time stood outside Jerusalem. If any city on earth should have welcomed him as Messiah, it was this city. If any people should have opened up their arms and welcomed him, it should have been these people. But he stood outside and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is left unto you desolate. Ah, see, there's a problem. We're not willing. And you know, if I could bring it right down to us this morning, sometimes this is our problem. Sometimes we resist the will and purpose of God. And this is why Jesus is saying, listen, pray our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God could just get us to instantly, quickly, continuously accept his will, we would be much better off for it. But we resist it, don't we? Now, we maybe don't blatantly shake our fist at God, but we have subtle ways of resisting it. You say, well, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. Moses, when God called him to go to Pharaoh, he says, I'm not a very good talker. You know, I've got a problem in speech. Now, God, you know what I'm like. I mean, you know me. I mean, he's 80 years old. Now, you know me. I've lived a long time. And you know how difficult it is for me to talk. God says, well, don't worry about that. I'll get Aaron to talk for you. You know, he's trying to find ways to, to you know, now he didn't feel I'm resisting the will of God, but suddenly that's what we do. We come up with all kinds of excuses to resist the will of God. 
I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. But if the will of God was carried out on earth as it is in heaven, how much better we would be and this world would be if that was the case. So he wants it to be done in us. He wants the world to know his will. Say, David, I don't know every detail of God's will, neither do I. That's why we've got to live daily and search his heart daily to know that. But there's one major thing about God's will that I do know, and you know, and the world needs to know. And here it is. 2 Peter 3 and 9. Peter said, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will for this world, in a word, is repentance. That's where it all begins to change. That's where it changed for you. That's where it changed for me. Without repentance, it can't happen. What is repentance? It's a turning away from, it's a turning on to. It's a turning away from that which is not godly, that which is not designed for us, onto that which is godly, which is designed for us. It's a turning from our own ways onto His ways. It's a turning around. And not even just a thinking about it. There's something in the act of it as a definite act of turning away from and turning on to. You know, right at the very beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, Matthew 3 and 2, here's what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his sole message. That was it. That's all he preached. Repentance from dead works. And hundreds and hundreds came out to be baptized to John and repent of their sins. That was his ministry. But what about Jesus? Well, you remember Jesus, he was baptized by John at the Jordan. You remember how after that, how he was in the wilderness being tempted of the evil one. And how out of that he came into Galilee and then eventually he came into Capernaum. And his ministry began. Listen to what it says in Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. Same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Mark's gospel picks up on this in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. After John had been put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So that's the message. That's God's will for this earth. That's what he wants people to do. And if we could get people to do that, their whole lives would change forever. Peter, in his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost, here's what he said. Acts 2.38, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Same message. First sermon. Thousands get saved. He preached a message of repentance. Paul's ministry in Acts 17, 22 and 31 to 31 it says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked because he's looking at all the idols and all the superstitions of the, of the Athenians. 
says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Same message, repent. That's the heart of the whole gospel. And guess what? Right at the very end of the Bible, in the very last book of the Bible, when Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven churches, to five out of the seven churches, he said, therefore be zealous and repent. That's to the church. And so you can see that when Jesus put this right at the very heart of this prayer, what he wants us to change, he wants us to repent because it's going to impact all of our lives. And he wants this world to repent. And so, I want you to notice something about this prayer also. And I'm keeping an eye on the time. Notice how Jesus starts it. And this is good for us in our prayer lives. And this is why we're teaching this. I, I don't know how you start your private prayers. I'm not talking about public prayers. But I don't know how you start your private prayers. When you're in that room, you come before the Lord and you actually begin to speak in prayer. What's the first thing you do? Is it to remind God of your needs? Or is it to consider Him and what He wants and what He thinks and who He is? Because Jesus is very, very careful in the order of this prayer. He's very careful that we consider Him first before we even begin to think about ourselves, that we think about Him first. Notice what He says. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Those three major things to remind God of the holiness of his name. To focus on his name and what that name means. And his character and his nature, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his compassion. All of those things. Let me tell you, that immediately can extend your whole prayer life. Because once you start going down that road in your thinking, there's no telling how long you'll spend thinking about that one. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Then having done that first, notice what he says. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into, deliver us. Give us, forgive us. Lead us not, deliver us. Now it's about us, isn't it? Now we have worshipped God. We have magnified who He is. We have glorified His name. We look for His will and His kingdom to be done in our lives. Once we have done all of that, then we begin to think of ourselves and our needs and what we want. See, this is the order that God gives to us. Give us, forgive us, lead us not, deliver us. And then He goes into that. He begins to... Expand a little bit more. Do you see where we're going in this? Now, 
I don't mean to say that every single time you pray that you're to think about all these things. Because we've got to be careful then we don't just get a pattern that we end up just by rote. So we, we need to mix up our prayers. But this, these are guidelines. This, this is a basis from which to work from. These are pointers for us. And I will guarantee you, if you haven't done this, begin to do it. And I will promise you that your prayer life will begin to develop more and more and more. There'll be more filling your mind for a start because I know that oftentimes we go to pray and after the first five minutes we have prayed everything we were going to pray. We've done our whole prayer list. That's it, done and dusted. Thank you very much. But it's not really, is it? Because maybe we haven't even thanked God for who He is and for what He is and for what He can do. Maybe we've never even thought about His will. We never even begin to think about his kingdom in us and all the ramifications of that and the consequences. And then you come around to our needs and what we desire. And you know what? He's just as interested in that. He wants to know. Now, we can't finish this this morning very obviously because I'm going to stop. But listen, when you get to the end of it, we'll come back to this, but when you get to the end of this prayer, do you know how he ends it? How he started it. Focusing back on God. And we're in between. This is a prayer sandwich, isn't it? And we're in between. We're the meat in between here. And so, please, try this. Think about it. If you don't already do it, now you've got your way of praying, that's fine, that's wonderful. And you're storming the gates of heaven, that's great. And you feel you're getting somewhere. And wonderful, glory to God. Praise the Lord, that's good. But... I suspect that that's not the case for many. This is why we're doing this. And so you try it and you see and see how day by day it begins to develop in your life. There's sometimes you may not even got to get to your needs. You just may get carried away just praising and glorifying God. And that's sorry. You don't always have to ask. You don't always have to come before God asking for something. He already knows anyway. Yeah, he likes us to ask. Daily bread, we'll talk about that at some point. But... Sometimes you'll not even get around to that. You'll just so much enjoy just worshiping him. And you know, in those times, God can just race ahead of you and just meet your need without you even asking for it because you've worshiped him. Amen? Now let's pray. In a moment, Tony's going to come and just going to lead us in the Lord's table here. Lord, like the disciples, we too say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us, Father, to come before your face, to seek your will and purpose in our lives, to realize who you are and what you are, that you are the mighty God, seated upon the throne of heaven. We thank you that your kingdom rules over all. We bless you, Lord, as we come into your presence, that you meet with us. Lord, help us to do this every day. To take some moment of each day and say, Father, I've shut the door. I've come into my room. I've turned off the TV. I've switched off the computer. I'm not going to be on Facebook for the next 40 minutes. Lord, I'm coming before you to seek your face.
Lord, help us to do that so that we might know your will and purpose and that we may draw closer to you and have a far more intimate and personal relationship with the God of heaven. This we pray in Jesus' name.